0: Ready, let's get started, we are recording, good, let me see what's going on here, let me get this started. Yeah. All right, let's load this up. There we are. Struggling a little bit there, but we are on board. Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to Negative Narratives, stories we tell ourselves to make life worse, which sounds pretty pessimistic, but... um. I want to start by saying the reason I'm keen to do a webinar on this topic is I guess I've just been really diving into philosophy over the last year or so. I've been looking into different philosophies from Stoicism to Taoism to Buddhism um, and even um, being schooled on ancient Islam, all sorts of different things I'm being taught and that are being shared with me. And there's been a kind of theme coming up in all the sort of ancient wisdom about the difference between reality and the story you tell yourself about reality. And as my, in my work as a coach, most of the suffering that I see with my clients and with everybody else who surrounds me in my life and of course in my own life is in the storytelling. Something weird's happening with my screen here. Hang on a second. Very weird. Somehow, something is drawing all over my thing. <laughs> Hang on a second.
1: Close that.
0: This is bizarre. Um. Let me just start that again. All right, let me see if I can figure this out. That is very weird. Don't know what that's coming from. Please be patient with me while I try to figure out what is happening here. I'm just gonna have to go ahead. I do not know where those red lines are coming from. I don't know what that is. Super annoying
1: Um,
0: All right, I'm just going to go ahead with it. I have no idea what that is So so today I want to talk about Negative narratives. I want to talk about the stories that I've most commonly seen in my work as a coach, what's come up again and again and again. And I want to try and give you guys some perspective that might shake your kind of attachment to these stories, help you see them when they're occurring, and to deal with them when they come up so that the suffering that comes with these stories is reduced and you can just enjoy life for what it really is. So what is a narrative? You know, there's a uh, there's an old quote from Wolf of Wall Street. Um, he says, you know, the only thing standing between you and your goal is the bullshit story you keep telling yourself as to why you can't achieve it. This is obviously a bit more of an attached to outcomes type mindset, but Again, it's this thing that if there's anything a human can achieve, you can probably do it too. So the idea that you can't or shouldn't or whatever is the only, that's that idea, that story is the only thing really stopping you from at least trying. And that's what a negative narrative is, is something that stands in between you and something that you should be doing or want to be doing. And it's invisible. It doesn't exist. It's just a story in your head. It's not a real barrier, but it feels like a real barrier. So it's a story that we tell ourselves to accompany the raw data of life. It's a story that we, we add to what is already happening. So there is the, the raw information of life, and then there's the, the thing we tell ourselves about that information. That's a narrative, a story. There are positive narratives. and um, One example is called the halo effect where everything somebody you like does, you tell yourself a story about how good they are as a person. And when they do something bad, because you like them, you justify it and you minimize it. So you're constantly adding positivity to who they are and what they do. You can see this with people who are really loyal to someone. No matter what that person does, no matter how horrific their behavior is, that person's loyalty is unshaken because they keep telling themselves a story about what a good person's You know this uh, this other person is so Positive narrative is when you keep adding positive Elements to raw data. You keep saying it's good And then there's of course negative narratives, which is what we'll be talking about today I do believe positive narratives can be as harmful. I Believe real truthfulness is about no narrative at all. It's just this is what is happening. Um, but negative narratives are what we're facing today. And this is things like self fulfilling prophecy, where you constantly tell yourself a negative story about what's happening, about what, you know, normally quite neutral events. You, you turn them into negatives. And that undermines your ability to do what you need to do. The story starts to eat away at you like poison and create a self fulfilling prophecy where you end up. Failing more often in doing what you want to do, and you end up procrastinating more uh, because you're telling yourself a story about procrastination or about failure, and that thing serves itself. You make it come true. You make this negative story into a reality when it never needed to happen that way. So a narrative is painted over reality. It's a story you add to what's happening, and you add it so quickly, so instantaneously that you can't even tell the difference. You know, for example, somebody, I might be talking to somebody on a date and they frown. Now all they've done is move their eyebrows. That's raw data, that all they've done is frown. But instantly at the same time, my brain goes, they're bored. It adds the story to the frown. Now that frown might've been impulsive. it might've been them concentrating on what I'm saying. It might've been them thinking hard. It might have been anger. It could have been all sorts of things, but my brain said boredom. And it said it so quickly that I actually think the frown and the boredom go together as equally true. And yet the frown is what really happened, and the boredom is the story I told myself about the frown. It's the negative narrative that I added to that person's facial expression. That's what I mean by being painted over reality. The boredom has been painted over the frowning, to become one with it. And I think they're one and the same thing. I'm sure that, that this person is bored. And yet there's no true evidence for that. There's just a story in my head. Frowning does not guarantee boredom. It's not a cause and effect relationship. So this story is just a story. But now I'm spending the rest of the day thinking, shit, she's really bored. Oh no, I've got to be more interesting. And I'm living by this story now. And yet at no point in time was it ever true. I should note at this point, for those of you who are joining us live, if there are anybody, a couple of people, um, use a little chat box to get my attention if you want to jump in with questions or thoughts or share your own stories. Um, I'll I'll jump in and chat with you. So that's what a narrative is. Let's move on. Uh, Okay. So I've I've listed, I don't know how many I've got, about nine or ten negative narratives that come up constantly. And I'm going to just go through them one at a time and we'll talk about generalities of narratives, but we'll talk about these ones specifically because I want to give you guys something that will apply to your own life. Okay. And I've got to start with the start, which is the I'm not good enough story. Not good enough it can be applied to yourself, it can be applied to others. I want to focus on how you apply it to yourself. So the I'm not good enough story is translated. Essentially, it means there's something fundamentally wrong with me. And this thing that's wrong with me is what's to blame for all the painful experiences I've ever had, you know, or most of them. So this idea that whenever you've had uncomfortable or painful emotional experiences, whenever things have gone wrong for you externally or internally, the story comes up saying it's because there's something wrong with me. Now, sometimes it could be very specific. You know, the girl says no to you when you ask her out and you say, oh, it's because I'm too fat. It's actually the same story. It's just contextual. I'm like, this time I'm choosing for it to be about my weight. And other times it it will come up in different ways. So I might later on that same day, my boss might yell at me and I'll tell myself, oh, it's because I'm just useless at my job. Now I'm actually telling myself the same story over and over again. I'm just saying there's something wrong with me. There's something wrong with me, there's something wrong with me, but I'll kind of map it on to, this, to the situation, and it sounds like a different story every time. And because it sounds like a different story every time, it's more convincing. It's more worrisome. It sounds like uh, it must be true because it's so specific and detailed. Yet the reality is, all I know is a girl said no to me, and, uh, and my boss yelled, but none of those things are actually evidence of anything beyond just what happened. The girl said, no, the boss yelled. It doesn't actually tell me anything about myself. The girl might say no because she's a lesbian The boss might yell at me because he has an anger management disorder. It might have nothing to do with me. In fact, the most likely explanation is it's got nothing to do with me is their preferences and their personality I'm seeing. And I'm just the trigger that could be triggered by anybody but you'll tell yourself a story, no, it's because of me. I'm the cause. That person would have said yes to somebody else, anybody else, and that boss would never yell at anybody else. It's just me and my wrongness. I'm broken. And it starts to to come out in, in quite extreme ways. You start to tell yourself that nothing goes right. You know, that you, because you're so fundamentally flawed, because you're broken on the inside in some like basic way that affects everything, start to become very pessimistic about your future because it's like there's no way i could ever have like long-term satisfaction or enjoyment because this problem that i have is going to come and fuck with it it's going to come in and ruin everything eventually so as we go through these i'm going to talk a bit about the cognitive biases that play a role in the storytelling mostly This webinar is just to get you thinking about storytelling, to notice when it happens, to notice when you add extra information that you made up to a situation, um, to evidence, to change the flavor of that evidence. That's all I really want to help you notice, because once you notice it, you will start to realize how untrue it is. But I also want to talk a bit about why this happens. Why, what's the point of having a not good enough story? Why, the, why would the brain do that to us? You know, why, why does the brain do this storytelling thing when it can be so harmful? Well, there's a few good reasons that we've discovered through psychological research so far. And there's one uh, that I want to focus on today. Well, there's two, two for this particular I'm not good enough story. And the first one is called the heuristic availability bias okay now this is just a fancy way of saying the thing that you remember most easily gets the most weight as evidence okay the thing that you can most easily remember is given the most weight of evidence so if i remember something really easily i'll assume that that thing is more true than things i don't remember very easily right like a great example of this is a lot of people think of their childhoods as being bathed in sunshine. They just remember these glorious summer days and they remember that easily. And so they, they think that the weather was better when they were younger. The truth is the weather was pretty much the same when they were younger. They just remember the sunny days easier. And because they remember it easier, their brain thinks it must've been sunnier overall. That's the heuristic availability bias. Okay. Now, How this links to emotions is that we also remember things more easily when we're more emotional at the time of the memory. Uh, Trauma is an extreme example of this. If you're traumatized emotionally during an event, uh, you will recall that very easily. You'll remember it all the time. It will haunt your dreams. Whereas if you're kind of bored and not paying attention during an event and not really feeling anything, you'll find it very hard to remember. Okay. So if you've got this, you've got this problem where you remember things more easily, you give them more weight, and you're going to remember things more easily if you're more emotional during the event. Now, when are we most emotional? When things go wrong, right? We're most likely to have a painful emotional reaction, therefore a very memorable uh, event when things go badly for us. So the I'm not good enough story, if you've got the suspicion, maybe built in childhood from your parents or bullies or something like that, that you're not good enough. And you start remembering over your life, and all you can think of is all these things that went wrong, just this constant stream of failure, you're going to assume that all those things you're remembering are significant memories, that they are heavy-weighted evidence, that they're proof there's something wrong with you. And yet there's a pretty good chance that if you're listening to this webinar, that your success rate is actually incredibly high because you'd be dead by now if it wasn't, simply put. You're obviously very successful at surviving because you've survived every single minute of every single day up until now. You're not dead yet. And on a more contextual level, for you to have the internet, to listen to a webinar, you know, to not be, you know floundering in the ditches, drinking, you know, methylated spirits, you're obviously doing all right. That's clear. So for you to think of yourself as a constant failure, you'd have to be very selective in your memory. Okay, you'd have to apply this heuristic availability. You remember the few times something painfully went wrong, and you kind of string those memories together chronologically, so it looks like that's all that happened. Just one wrong thing after another. You know, your boss yells at you and you think, oh, I'm so useless at work. But even if your boss yelling at you was a measurement of, of success, he's not yelling at you all day long. So the rest of the day, you're doing fine. But you don't remember that. You just remember the one time he yelled three weeks ago, you know. So available heuristic, it undermines your previous experiences of just showing that you're a normal human being, trucking along, doing fairly well by most standards it just focuses on these things that hurt you a lot. Now, you've already got the I'm not good enough story because your memory of those events will already be painted with the story as well. You've had it probably since childhood. So not only will you remember something going wrong very easily, but you'll also remember the story you told yourself at the time is how you were the cause of it going wrong. Okay. It's called the fundamental attribution error. You, You think everything that happens is because of you. So I think back to a time when a girl rejected me really badly in high school. And I think it was because of who I am. She didn't, you know, as if she didn't reject other people. Now that even, is clear, she rejected people all the time. She was getting asked out like 10 times a day, this girl. It's not like I'm special. But I told myself that I was at the time, that I'm a freak, that I'm some unattractive guy. So my memory of the event is not only being rejected, but of being unattractive. And yet that's just the story. I don't know why she said no. She probably doesn't even know. Even if she could explain it to me, she'd probably tell me something wrong because nobody really knows why they do anything. Right? We don't know what our subconscious drives are. So the idea that it was because there was something wrong with me was a story I'd already started telling myself at the time of the event and shortly after, and now it's attached to the memory of the event. So when I remember it, I feel like I'm remembering the story and the event as one thing. I was definitely unattractive. That's my memory. The truth is some teenage girl said no to some teenage boy in a very specific context. And we have no idea why that happened. That's the truth of it. To say there's something wrong with me because of that is essentially really creative license. Okay, it's really making up some shit. So that's the heuristic availability bias. And then underlying this is the biggest bias that will ever affect your life, in my opinion confirmation bias for those of you who don't know what it is or we should always I guess revisit it confirmation bias is when you your brain tries to keep believing what it already believes okay tries to keep believing what it already believes so if you already believe that you're a loser that you're not good enough your brain's natural impulse when it comes to storytelling will be to tell that story over and over again It doesn't need evidence to tell the story. That's the important thing to understand. Your brain can tell you this story over and over again without even a stitch of evidence, without any proof whatsoever. It will just make evidence up. It'll often tell the story based on the story. So I might go out and try to do a five-kilometer run, and I just crap out at four kilometers. My brain will go instantly like, oh, you're not good at running. There's no evidence for that. I ran four kilometers. It's actually pretty good evidence that I'm, I'm an established runner. But because I set this imaginary goal of five, which isn't a measurement of anything, there's no way you can say five kilometers definitely means you're a good runner, right? But I've, I've already set myself up with this story. And that's the thing your confirmation bias will do as well is it will set you goals that you're designed to fail so that it can keep the story going. So I've run four Ks. My brain just goes, oh, see, You failed again because you're a fucking loser. And does that little because thing. And yet the idea that I failed is a myth. And the idea that I'm a loser is a myth. Those are both creative things. The truth is I left my house and my feet ran for a certain distance and then I stopped running. That's all that happened. That doesn't tell you anything about me. It doesn't tell you about anything about my worth as a person. Nothing. It doesn't tell you anything. There's no evidence to be derived on my quality as a person from those events. But my brain adds a lot to it. It adds a story. And it keeps adding the story because it wants to keep believing it. The the most devastating thing about the not good enough story, as painful as it is, it's easy to keep that belief going. There's a lot of uh, freedom from responsibility with this story. If I'm not good enough, then I don't have to expect things from myself. You know, I don't have to hold myself to account. I'm a failure, so why expect myself to try hard? There's a lot of gains to be had in the I'm not good enough story and that's why your brain keeps it going But the truth is, you know, you've never not been good enough because you're still alive The only measure we could really say that someone is good enough is that they're not dead yet, right? Anything else is too subjective to be called a measurement Can't say someone's good enough because they can run 5ks. Well, what about someone in a wheelchair? Can they never be good enough? doesn't make sense so I want you to just notice the story, how every time something goes wrong, your first conclusion is it's because of you. It's a very childish view of the world. The idea that the universe is affected by you so strongly that every negative, painful thing happens was caused by you. It's a very godlike view of the world, of yourself. Whereas really, we're just like leaves on a stream. The universe is already set up before we are born. All the variables are in play, and we're just pushed around by them most of the time. The idea that we're we're the cause of that is really, really narcissistic. So I want you to just notice with the I'm not good enough story, how you treat your failures and your successes. The fact that you even use the word fail and succeed um, supplies the ammunition for the story. But I want you to notice how when something goes well or good or it was pleasurable, how your brain undermines it, says that you just got lucky or that you still could have done better and so on. But when you have a failure, your brain exaggerates it, turns into this big disaster, like, see, you're such a fuck loser, can't believe you did it again, bloody fucking blah, when in reality, you're fine. Whatever it was that happened, you're fine. You're not You're not in a ditch drinking with the spirits, you know, you're not being hanged for treason. You're, you're doing all right. Really, you are. And that's the truth of it most of the time is you, you, you're fine. So I just want you to notice that extra story you add, just because something was painful, all you know is that you had pain when something happened. There's no extra information to that. You have to create a story to say, because this and because that. And creating is just another word for lying. Next one. It's someone else's job. Or it's someone else's responsibility. So the translation for this one is my decisions are dependent on outside forces okay uh, the idea that the the locus of control as it's called the 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 causal point of your decision making lies somewhere outside of your uh your autonomy that you are forced to do things essentially um And this is such a powerful negative story because it instantly transports you into the victim. It it takes you to this victim place. And it causes something I call green light syndrome where you're constantly waiting to be told what to do, to be encouraged, to be given permission. You can't take any risks. You're just following orders. You know, for me, I remember going from primary school to high school to university it felt like I was just uh you know going down a water slide like the the route had been preset for me and I didn't have any choice in the matter I just slid down it you know even when I chose certain subjects in high school I felt like somebody else was choosing them for me it felt like I was being pushed from some external force and I was, by the time I was in university, I was going like, why am I here? I don't even remember wanting to be here, but here I am. It's like, I'm just following the rules somehow. So it's really just a sense that everything I'd ever done was just the result of outside forces. And and it's a very powerless feeling, like you're just waiting for someone else to tell you how to act. You're waiting for someone else to tell you what to do. And you don't even see the story, but it's there throughout the day. You know, it's there all the time. It's the because part when you do something, you know, you might say, oh, I've got to get this job because, you know, you need a job. Now, you didn't decide you need a job. Someone else did. So what you're really saying is someone else has decided I need a job and I have to follow that rule, right? You you tell it to yourself so quickly and fluently that it sounds like your own idea, but when you look at it, it was never your idea. It came to you from someone else and you just went with it. You know, I've got to get married. Right? Now, if you'd been born into a culture that didn't have marriage, you would have never thought of the idea of it. It would have never occurred to you to get married. And yet here you are thinking you have to. It sounds like it's your own story, like your own idea. I have to get married. But it definitely came from somebody else. Right? Because it's not something you can naturally make up. So, there's this idea that it's someone else's job to tell me what to do. It's the idea that uh, someone else needs to take care of this. And where it happens most, and I think most devastatingly, is in the bystander effect. So, where something's going wrong. Somebody needs to step in, get their fucking hands dirty and fix this problem. And you're sat around going, well, who's going to do this? Not realizing that you're somebody. You could do it. Oh God, I used to see this so much in my old job where there'd be a problem and somebody would have a 90-minute meeting just arguing over whose job it was to fix the problem. I was like, we could have had a 10-minute meeting planning how to fix the problem and moved on. But everyone was going, okay, here's a problem. My first job was to figure out who else should be doing this instead of like, how can we fix this? It's a very victim, powerless stance on problem solving. You'll notice that like you get stuck in traffic and your first job is, you know, your first uh, question is like, why is there traffic? Did somebody crash? It's like, you're looking for somebody else for this to be blamed on. You're looking for somebody else whose job it is to fix this rather than going, okay, I'm in traffic. What am I going to do about it? How do I make this experience good for myself? So your decisions In a sense, yes, they are dependent on outside forces, but there's no real such thing as outside forces. You know, All the atoms uh, in the universe come into contact with each other. Everything affects everything else. There's an interconnectedness there. So your decision-making is really up to you. It's not like you can just wait for someone else to tell you how to live. And when you see a problem, it's not for someone else to fix. It's for you or it's for no one. Right. When you start taking responsibility, when you start going, you know what, every problem in my life is my job to deal with. doesn't mean you have to do it alone, but it's your job. Everything is your job. The power comes back. You'll realize actually most of these things are my job. There are some that are other people's, but I can still do my part or I can move on with my life and leave it to somebody else. This idea where everything is, is up to somebody else Very powerless point of view. Next story, the entitlement story. I deserve it. I deserve X, Y, and Z because, you know, they should. Somebody else should because I am. So the translation is the idea that there's a currency in the universe and that you're owed for your services, right? It's the most common word for this is entitlement. The idea that Somehow you deserve something. I want you to notice that. I want you to notice all the things you take for granted. the story you tell yourself about why something should happen you know why why your your boss should offer you the promotion and why why the girl on the date should initiate sex and and why your friends should call you first and all these things you think you deserve. The fact that you even deserve to be alive. Notice that story. Because it's just a story. There is no evidence for it. I want you to look at that. I mean look around and go, where is the evidence that there is a system in this universe that repays service? Really? You know. Think of all like all the good people who have died. None of them live forever. Right? The universe didn't give a fuck that they were good people. It didn't reward them. You're not, you're not going to have a higher life expectancy by being a good servant than you will by being a mean bastard. You really won't. There's no evidence for that. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't do anything good. What I'm talking about, the idea that you deserve something, it's completely bullshit, completely fictional. You don't deserve anything. You're not owed anything. Even if someone literally legally owes you money, there's no rule in the universe that says you're going to get that money. I mean, no matter what you do, there's nothing coming to you in a guarantee. There is no contract. You're, the more likely explanation, more truthful one, is that you're very, very fucking incredibly lucky to be alive at all. You're not owed shit. You're in debt, of anything. The fact that you're alive when all of the sperm of your father have died before you, you know, Uh, that you survived childbirth, that you survived the endless challenges to your survival since the day you were born. You didn't get hit by a car and die. You didn't get a chronic illness and die. You didn't get murdered. You're still here and you think you're owed? No, you're incredibly lucky. You're winning the lotto 10 days in a row lucky. Okay. But you tell yourself a story. No, I'm owed shit. I'm... Because I'm a good person. So I've, I've got something coming to me. There's some sort of karma in the universe where me doing things will be rewarded. So you, you, you'll play out these covert contracts. You know, you'll do something nice for something at work and then you sort of sit around waiting for the, for the comeback. You wait for the payout. As if you're doing something nice is being racked up on a scoreboard somewhere and somebody's looking to balance the scales. You know, you have these beliefs and fairness and reciprocation and this kind of like, of treat others like they treat you and everybody will kind of take it. But there's no proof for this. You could be an awesome fucking person and not get shit in return. And really you can. I'm not saying that to be pessimistic and I'm not saying that to sort of justify terrible, selfish behavior. I'm just saying if that's why you're doing something, then you're not really a giving person. That's very conditional giving. You're saying I'm going to be a good person because I'm owed something in return then you're not really giving. It's what I call extortion. You're forcing a debt onto other people and to the rest of the universe. And it's just a story. You don't deserve anything. Nothing's coming to you. There's only one person you can be guaranteed to receive rewards from, and that's yourself. And you have to give them to yourself. And you have to create a life where you find it rewarding. It's all on you. Nobody's going to do that for you. You understand? And you see the most extreme examples of people who live by the story and, and spoilt children, the ones who are actually really made to believe that they deserve something, that they're special and that they get rewards without even trying. And we're probably breeding a whole generation of it now with the, you know, the trophies for participation type kids. This idea that just being alive is some fucking massive achievement that you deserve a fucking standing ovation for every time you walk into a room. The problem with this is, you know, I've got a friend or a friend of a friend will say who I think is a great example of this. Uh, he died in his 30s, massive health problems, and they were all preventable health problems. He did this to himself. Uh, I have no shame in saying that. He lived a life of gluttony. And because, I mean, this is a guy who in his 30s, his mum's still making his lunch for him. You know, he's still living at home with mummy taking care of him. Um, because he'd just been trained his whole life to believe, look, just sit there and everything will be brought to you. He had no self-discipline. He had no sense of kind of self-worth uh, from his own behavior. He didn't need to do anything to be awesome. He didn't earn it. Because he didn't earn it, he was just drinking all the time. And, you know, there was no real self-worth coming from himself. And he killed himself early, essentially he killed himself with like poor self-care. Because he thought he deserved something instead of going, I've got to go and earn my place in this world. I was very fucking lucky to be given this gift of life, and I should should repay that favor more than be expecting even more. You know, it's like the millionaire going, "Where's my billion dollars?" Right, rather than going, "Holy shit, I can't believe I even have a single dollar." That's incredibly lucky. Most of people in the world don't. So. The story that you deserve something, that things should happen a certain way, that life should be fair, that people should reciprocate, it's just a story. There's no proof for that. Yes, some people do reciprocate, and yes, you do sometimes get rewarded, but that doesn't prove anything. It's just that time it happened, other times it doesn't. Right? You'll find more often than not it doesn't, and that's okay. You don't need to get something in return to be a good person. The next story that I think really cripples people, the I need it story, the idea that neediness, the feeling of neediness, that kind of hunger that you get mentally or physically is a signal that somehow you're at risk, that somehow you're less than complete right now.
1: <coughs>
0: Ooh, excuse me. So I think that the biggest thing here is the word need is a very powerful one and people use it all the time. But very rarely do they use it accurately. People say, I need something so often when they just want something. There's very few things you need. You need protection from the elements, or you can die within three hours. You need water, or you can die within three days. And you need food, or you can die within three weeks. Those are the basic needs. There is some psychological argument that you need love, but psychopaths put that argument to bed. They don't need it. And so you can't say all humans do. So you have these three very basic needs, right? Protection from the elements, water, and food. If you say you need anything else, you're lying, okay? You're lying, scientifically speaking, that is not true. You don't need anything else. You want a lot of other things, and your quality of life will go up if other things happen, definitely. But the idea that you need them, untrue okay absolutely untrue so neediness i think often comes from a language from we tell ourselves a story saying i need i need when really we just mean i would like or i want but we come to believe i need something like i need a girlfriend and then you just feel this constant lack all the time like oh while i'm single i'm incomplete you know i'm dying so no you're not you can be single for your entire life you could actually have a really good life being single If you're okay with it you won't have a good life without food you know ask anyone who's ever been in like a prison of war camp that's a fucking awful life no matter who you are but you'll be fine single so i need that new car you definitely don't if you needed that car you would have been born with it okay you weren't you don't need it in fact if you'd never been made aware of that car you would have never felt any desire for it whatsoever Right now, if someone never told me about water, I'm still going to crave it, right? Because I actually need it. You don't need the things you think you need. You want them, you're needy for them, but you don't need them. So the story, I need something. It's really important that you start catching yourself using that word and go, no, I just really want something. And even that's questionable. Do you really want it? Like uh, there's this. So many guys will like look at a girl that they've never met before and go, oh my god. I really wanna fuck her. So really, do you have any idea what she's like in bed? Are you sure you want that experience? What if her favorite form of having sex is kicking a guy in the balls? Would you still be saying that now? Because you don't know what, her, what she's like in the bedroom and you're saying you want her? How can you want something you don't know? It's bizarre, it's a total lie. Now to say that you look at her and you feel attraction, that's getting more honest, right? To say that you want something from there is a lie because you don't know what that thing will be like to receive. So you can't know that you want it. Maslow's hierarchy, right? There are needs that go up in in sort of order, but they translate from need to want, okay? We don't need self-confidence to survive an entire life. There's plenty of evidence for that. We want it, though. That's okay to want it. You just got to know that desire spectrum, that very few things are in the survival space. Everything else is basically a luxury. And what was the point I wanted to make about survival there? The more needs of survival, the easier to obtain. Okay, I'm just looking at my notes and not understanding them. The more, you, yeah, the more you're focused on just getting your survival needs met, the easier life is for you. If all you want to do is have shelter, water, and food, life's incredibly easy this day and age for most people. Right, those needs can be met within, I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes of effort per day, right? To just get those basic needs met, you could get that done. very little effort, and then the rest of the day you'd have leisure time. But if you want a lot for luxury's sake, if you want cars and you want people to love you, and you want approval and you want sex, and you want a house and you, and you want nice clothes and you want to travel, now life becomes quite difficult, okay? There are a lot of challenges in getting those so-called needs met. So the question I always ask myself when I say I need something is, will I die without it? And if I am sure that I will, where's the evidence for that? You know, I've had people say, well, studies show that people in a relationship live longer. I'm like, well, did the study show that you'll live longer? Are you one of those people? Because every study has exceptions on both sides of the fence, right? And all the oldest people in the world usually die single because they outlive their partners. So what the fuck are you talking about? Yes, a lot of people might have a longer life expectancy because they have partners, but maybe that's just because they're needy. Maybe if they were self-satisfied, then being single could last just as long. We don't know why they live longer. We just know that they have partners as they live longer, that doesn't mean that the partner is the cause of their longevity. It's just a correlation, it's not cause and effect. So the idea that you need love to survive is just a story that has not been proven scientifically. And there's plenty of counter evidence. There are plenty of people who don't care about love or have been single and they're still alive, right? Some of them are even thriving. So it's a much more likely story that your neediness will do damage to you over time and that neediness is just a story saying I need something when really you just want it and you're not even sure you want it because you haven't had it before you don't know what it really is there's so many people my god say I want a relationship and they get into one and you're like fuck this is way harder than being single I'm like dude I told you you <laughs> know don't get into a relationship until you are sure you really want to like pay the price for being in a relationship it's great I, I prefer it to being single at the moment but I'd go back to being single too, right? It goes both ways. So, moving on. Next sort of most uh, powerful negative narrative, I think people tell themselves, is... You always can't like hey You mind just start muting using your microphone here, please, mate. And I can't do there we go. Awesome. Cheers, Ray. And feel free to jump on the chat box if you want to ask questions or say anything. Um. So the next negative narrative we're talking about the happiness equals success narrative, the story we tell ourselves that you know painful emotion is bad, a failure, anything that we feel inside that we don't like feeling is a sign that something's gone wrong. And that any pleasure we feel inside is a sign of success, that we're doing well. Um, so the translation of this essentially is that positivity, happiness are signs of living well. And anything painful or uncomfortable is a sign that you're doing worse than other people. Okay? It's a thing that you try to get away from. You think you're in the wrong place. This is a very powerful story. Um, and it's funny, it's kind of a recent one. I've been doing a bit of history research lately. And the idea that we should be happy and happy equals successful is relatively new. We're kind of about the second generation of, of people to go through this belief because before this, that was not expected, you know, before this, in fact, the most successful people often, you know, sort of grumpy and miserable, the Kings and the the people running everything, you know, they, they weren't like bathing in, in happiness all the time. There was the Epicurean movement uh, a couple of thousand years ago where people were seeking pleasure as a sign of a good life. But, Ultimately, the idea of happiness equals success is a very American-based movement that came out in the 70s. And it's a story so many of us believe. We believe that if we're depressed or anxious or angry or confused or sad, that somehow we've failed at something. We, we've dropped the ball. Our emotions are telling us that we're not doing very well. And then when we're feeling happy, we feel certain that we must be doing well. And this creates really painful behavior patterns because then we start to seek pleasure and avoid pain under the guise that, well, if I'm feeling pleasure all the time, then I'm doing well, if I'm feeling pain all the time, I'm doing badly. And yet the opposite can easily be true. Right? A hero somebody you know strung out on heroin feels really good. are they successful? You know Somebody working hard to start their own business so they can provide for their family and enjoy freedom of lifestyle, is going to experience a lot of painful emotions. Are they failing? There's no real guarantee that the way you feel tells you anything about how well you're living. These emotions uh, are going to fluctuate all the time and it all depends on what's happening to you as to whether or not these emotions are telling you you're doing well or doing poorly. I mean, I I had a pretty hedonistic lifestyle in my early 20s. took drugs and drunk a lot and and just partied and tried to fuck anybody I could. There was lots of like feelings of pleasure during those moments, but it took me years to recover from it because I did so much damage to my psyche and my body through living that way. So looking back now, I have to absolutely say that those feelings of positivity were a sign of failure, not success. And yet so many, so many of us believe that successful people are somehow blissfully happy all the time. We ignore the, clear fact that people like robin williams kill themselves that the people that have everything we've ever wanted are still fucking miserable sometimes and we also ignore the much harder to find evidence but abundant in existence of people who live simple lives who don't tick any of the boxes of major success and they're quite blissfully content with who they are you know i've got a group of friends like this who keeps me in check they're all tradesmen None of them are going to be famous names at any point in time. Their whole week consists of just working hard. And on the weekend, they go fishing, have a drink with their friends, fuck their wives, whatever. They just have a very basic, simple life. And they're just constantly enjoying themselves. They're all confident. They don't want anything more than what they've already got. How is that not successful? You know? So... The idea that the way you feel is a measurement of how well you're doing with your life is a story you tell yourself. It's an absolute myth. And it creates biases. So you'll notice that your behavior and even your results are ignored. It's all about how you feel. That becomes your priority measurement. So If you feel rough, you think that was a bad day. You don't actually look at what you did that day. You don't look at the results that what you did created. I might have a day that felt really bad, but I did a lot of good things for my life in that day. But if all I care about is how I feel, I'll call that day a failure, which will actually steer me away from repeating those behaviors that were helpful behaviors. And I might have a day where I just fuck around like smoking weed and watching Netflix and not doing anything with my life. And I feel real good about that day. And so my brain goes, oh, I should do that again. And yet that's actually a really awful way to live for my long-term well-being. So when you you think the way you feel is a measurement of how well you're doing, you're setting yourself up, okay? It doesn't mean that happiness is bad. It just means that happiness isn't anything. It's neutral. It's just a feeling. It doesn't tell you anything about whether or not you're living a good life. It's just a feeling that comes up. Now, if it comes up in reward for living the right way for a long time, then that's great. Enjoy it. But it's not a guarantee. It can also come up when you're living very poorly doesn't tell you anything. Same with Ang, even anxiety and depression, though I think these are definitely signs that something's going on. You can feel anxiety when you've done all the right things. It can actually be, in a sense, uh, something telling you, like, yeah, I'm really stepping out of my comfort zone. I'm really I'm doing something important. It can be telling you that. Even depression, you know, I've been looking at depression a lot over the last couple of years, trying to understand it. And I've seen that like depression and artistic creativity often go hand in hand. I'm not sure exactly why there's a correlation there, but it's undeniably a correlation there. And most of the top artists will report having massive bouts of depression. There's something creative in depression. Or there's something that allows creativity to occur because of depression. And so the idea that you're failing if you're depressed isn't necessarily true. It could be a sign that you've been living in a crap way. And, you know, the times I've had depression is certainly in my mind being because of that. It isn't like some chemical imbalance. It's because I've treated like myself like shit for a long time and I'm suffering the consequences. But there's some other people where I think depression is telling them like, just change your job, please. You know, do something else with your life. This sucks. It's a very helpful piece of information. It might actually motivate you to quit your job. Like you might be so depressed that you can't work anymore. And that might be the best thing you ever do. How could we call that a failure? You know, you're creating emotional shame with this story that the positive emotions are positive. They're not positive, they're pleasurable. That doesn't mean good. It just means they feel good. Okay? Stop calling happiness a positive emotion. Stop calling sadness and anger negative emotions because we don't know if they're positive or negative. They're neutral, they're just emotions. It's like saying green is good and red is bad. It doesn't make any sense. They're just colors, right? It's what you do about them that's positive or negative. So I really think, you know, Mark Manson talks about this a lot. and Dr. Russ Harris, the picture that you see on the screen there is from his book, The Happiness Trap. The happiness movement's ruined us all. You know, it's taken us away from that more stoic kind of accept life as it is, use your emotions to guide your approach, to this idea where we're just trying to seek pleasure all the time. And we're jealous of people who appear to be pleasurable, which is heightened by the like the fakery that you see on social media. And yet, <laughs> what I love about social media is the meme movement, mostly because memes make me laugh. But also, there's a big, big theme with memes of jokes around like how we pretend to be happy, and underneath it all, we're just really dark and negative. There's heaps of like social anxiety memes and. Depression memes and stuff and people are starting to show now. Hey, we're all pretending like we're happy when really we're not You know, and I'm great. I'm glad to see that message coming through You know people are using indirect humor to point out the very obvious fact that everyone looks like they're having a good time But very few people are it's all bullshit um, But you could be having a better time if you didn't measure yourself based on how you feel Instead, except you're gonna feel a range of emotions your entire life, it's not a measurement of anything in terms of how good you are as a person. They just indicator the lights on the dashboard telling you what needs to happen next. You know, feeling sadness, it's time to grieve. Feeling stress, it's time to take a break. Feeling anger, it's time to set a boundary. Feeling happiness, time to chill out and enjoy the scene. You know, they're all just telling you something. You know, whether or not you listen to them determines whether or not they're good or bad. All right. Negative narrative number 6 we well, I've got quite a few here, I'm going to try and speed this up, I don't want to spend my whole life talking about negative narratives, I must control my thoughts, translation thoughts are representations of truth and reality and they can be consciously controlled, the idea of free will, that if you have a thought that's bad you should be able to somehow replace it with other thoughts. I know that some of you listening to this will be involved with other schools of self-development that absolutely believe in this. And I want to say unequivocally that I do not. I do not believe you can control your thoughts. Okay? And on top of that, I absolutely believe that to try and do so is incredibly dangerous. That it can lead to obsessive-compulsive thinking um, and it can lead to all the other stories coming true as well. I think the most... The most important lie that we tell ourselves about thoughts is that they're truthful, worthwhile pieces of information. That we must do something about them. It's like thinking that you have to listen to every advertisement on the radio, that every advertisement is important to you, that you can't just ignore it or just let it play in the background, that you have to pay attention to every single word that's said from the radio. I think of thoughts as just a radio station in my head, just my brain talking to itself. The idea that I have to listen to everyone and act on everyone and do something about everyone. And even worse, that I have to try and control what it's saying. Absolute myth. There's no proof that I need to do that. So what happens when you think your thoughts can be controlled and that they're true and real is that fusion occurs. And that's where you become attached to thoughts and you amplify them and exaggerate them and believe them and start following them even though thoughts can be completely nonsensical, you know, I can have a thought like, look at this as an anorexic. I could have a thought that I'm too fat. Now, clearly I'm not, I'm actually undernourished, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in dangerous. I dangerously need to take on more food, but I can still have a thought. I'm too fat. How trustworthy are thoughts of that thought can happen in that state of physical deprivation, you know, I can have a thought that says, I need to change my job when there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that my job needs to change. I can just have that thought pop into my head. I've had fantasies pop into my head that are physically impossible, right? I've had fantasies of being in space. I've had fantasies of being uh, invincible and unable to be killed. All sorts of random bullshit has popped into my head. To believe any of it would be lunacy. Now those thoughts are easier to spot when a thought says, you know, right now you can think I am a sparrow. You can have that thought and you know it's not true. But you have another thought like, oh my God, like I'm not doing enough with my life. And you think that one's more true than the thought about the sparrow. And yet they're both equally true. They're just thoughts. They're just noises in your head. You can't even find thoughts on a scan. Did you know that? (laughs) Nobody's ever been able to really see them properly. There's little bits of electrical activity, but to say this is where you're thinking of that, we are getting there actually in neuroscience. It's getting to the point where you can actually delete memories and stuff, and that scares the piss out of me. But for now, the idea that you must control your thoughts, you know, positive thinking, again, an offshoot of of the positivity happiness movement from the 70s, that your thoughts can and should be controlled. What neuroscience clearly shows us at this stage is that thoughts, ideas, decisions occur primarily in the subconscious. We become aware of them after they've already happened. And you'll see this with thoughts because they just pop into your head, right? Just take a second now to just still your mind and just watch a thought pop into your head. See, I had one just now. It said, my computer's making a weird noise. I didn't decide to think that. It just popped into my head. My brain just seemed to notice the noise my computer was making and said something about it. I didn't choose to have that thought consciously. It occurred to me. So the idea that I can control a process that occurs to me is like saying I can control the weather. Okay, I can control other drivers on the road. It's ridiculous and Pointless. What we can see with a lot of, especially acceptance and commitment therapy research, is people who try to control their thoughts end up being more harmed by them than they were them when they just left it alone. I call it the CBT fallacy, the idea that thoughts can and should be controlled. What I think is much more helpful approach to this is know that thoughts are just noise inside your mind there's potential for creativity in them. Like I can think up a plan or I can think of something to draw. I can think of my next dance move. But that's a really interesting one, actually, that last example. When I, I've been dancing quite a while now and I've noticed that if I stop trying to think of how to dance and listen to the music, my body automatically comes up with good dance moves for the music. When I try to think of what to do, I stutter and stumble. It's like my thought gets in the way of my body doing what it wanted to do. It's bizarre. It took me a long time to see this. When I'd be in a dance class, I'd have someone show me the move, and I'd be really consciously thinking of it and stumbling over my own two feet. And then I'd just say, okay, I'll just walk through the movement, so my body knows it, and then I'll just count to myself. Boom, dun, dum, boom, dun, dun. And then just let my body do its thing. And the funny thing is my body could do the move without me having to think of what the move was. So the, the, the decision-making about doing the move was occurring in my subconscious. My thinking was getting in the fucking way, especially my attempts to think, my attempts to control my thoughts. I have no doubt that thoughts serve a useful purpose, but the idea that you have to control them, the idea that they're truthful, that is a lie. There's no proof for that. It's a story you tell yourself. You can have thoughts like, oh my god, don't fucking do it, and still do it. It doesn't actually stop you taking the action, right? So I really want you to, more than anything else, because you the stories that we're talking about are usually made up of thoughts. Notice that the thought themselves, thoughts themselves are just noises. That thoughts can be completely fictional and completely detached from reality and still sound very real. That doesn't mean they are real, okay? One of the next negative narratives, I'm being judged. Okay. This is a big one for social anxiety. This idea, people's opinions are a threat to me. Now, the idea that you're being judged is actually probably truthful. As you walk around, people are making assessments of you. But almost certainly they're more worried about the assessments you're making of them and they are putting effort into making one of you. But even if they are, let's let's give you the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, everyone is judging me. It's the point where you say, and this is bad for me, that that turns this into a fiction. You can be judged all day long without receiving even the tiniest piece of harm. The idea that judgment itself is harmful is a myth. It's fictional. It's, It's something we've been calling in Brojo mind reading. I watch someone. I assume they're judging me, and then I try to guess what that judgment is, and usually I come to a negative conclusion. Or if I'm narcissistic and arrogant, I come to an equally false, positive conclusion. You know, there, there's a huge difference between over-negative feedback and imagined criticism. We, we do so much of our self-assessment based on imagined criticism, and very little based on actual overt criticism you know there's there's a there's a big difference like when i used to do dance competitions there'd be the actual judges who would give us a score and that's like three people so that would be the only like real feedback we got but then there would be the thoughts we had about what other people thought of our performance and that would be the imagined feedback you know And I can see this going – it's interesting to watch other people do this in the dance world. I can see the people who are imagining that they've had positive feedback because they dance like they're awesome when they're actually doing a lot of things really wrong and, like, quite dangerous. You see, especially, like, show-off people like this. They're thinking that everyone's, like, impressed with them, but really everyone's watching them like, oh, my God, I can't believe he's doing that. He's going to break your neck. And then, But more commonly, there's people going like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry about that. I'm like, what are you sorry for? Oh, I fucked it up. I'm like, shit, I didn't even notice. What were you imagining? I thought. You know? And so they actually thought that I'm criticizing them, and I didn't even notice the thing that they think I'm criticizing them for. It's just totally imagined. And yet they've totally, they've taken that feedback on board as if they received it from a professional dancer. You know, they're now like, oh my God, I better not do that again. And I had no problem with it. Nobody had a problem with it. They just made it up in their head and they think it's real. So there's obviously a big link between negative judgments and suffering, and yet most of that suffering is coming from judgments you made up inside your head. The likelihood that the imagined criticism in your head matches the actual judgment in the other person's head is almost zero. There might be some things, like if you're a really self-aware person, and most likely you're not, but if you are, you might be able to accurately guess how people feel about you some of the time but even if you're good at it, you're going to be at least a little bit wrong most of the time. Like I've studied psychology to death. I've worked with thousands upon thousands of people face-to-face, studying them, learning everything I need to learn about how to read somebody. And yet I still get it wrong. There'll be times where I think, you know, I say to somebody, because I test this all the time. In a coaching session, I'll say, I'm assuming that you're thinking this. And they'll be like, no, not quite. It's more like this. So if someone like me, whose whole job it is to read people still gets it wrong, what's the likelihood that you're getting it right? Almost zero. How often do people get you wrong? That's about how often you get other people wrong. Okay. But even if you're getting it right, the, the idea that this is going to harm you, that people judging you is going to be bad for you, is totally fictional. One of the examples I that really helped me is I used to really think people not liking me was a bad thing. And I realized, well, I asked myself, what happens when someone doesn't like me? And in movies, when somebody doesn't like someone, they punch them in the face and they become their enemy. In real life, when somebody doesn't like someone, they avoid them, okay? 99% of the time, someone doesn't like you, they'll just stay away from you. They just don't want to be in your presence. So essentially, being disliked is being ignored. That is the most common representative behavior of being disliked, is someone ignoring you. And I thought to myself, well... There's 7 billion people on the planet at the moment. Most of them don't even know I've ever been born. They are essentially ignoring me. It's the exact same as if they don't like me. If they didn't like me, they'd be doing exactly what they're doing right now, which is ignoring me. And yet, it's never harmed me. My whole life, billions of people have ignored me, and I have no wounds to show for it. No scars, no damage whatsoever. So why do I think someone judging me negatively is dangerous? If it was dangerous, I pretty sure billions of people doing it would have killed me by now, right? Like being stabbed is dangerous and if billions of people stabbed me. I would just be mincemeat, right? But being disliked, which is the same as being ignored. Most of the time, if that was dangerous, I'd, I'd be fucked by now because billions of people have ignored me. So the idea that being judged negatively, sure, it happens. But the idea that that hurts you, that's all in your head. What hurts you is what you do to yourself about it. You imagine someone criticizing you, and then you tell yourself you're not good enough. That hurts you. But the other person didn't do that. They just sat there, and you did all the work. It was your stories that hurt you, not the other person. Somebody could fucking hate you. they could come up to your face and say, you're a fucking loser. I hate you. Get out of my life. That still doesn't harm you until you tell yourself a story about that. Now, you could tell yourself a story, wow, this person's really got an anger management problem and they've got communication skills that they need to work on, and you're unharmed. But if you tell yourself a story like, oh, no, I must be a bad person, then you're harmed. It's the story that hurts you. The person yelling in your face is just noise. It's like listening to loud music. It doesn't do anything to you. The real translation behind other people judging me is, is a bad thing. Is I want something from them and their judgment threatens to take that away. So it's what you want that hurts you. If I want people to love me, then them being judged is a risk because they can take that love away by judging me. If I don't need them or want them to love me, then their judgment can't do any harm. If I want sex from that girl, then the way she judges me can remove the possibility of that sex and therefore I would take being judged as a threat. But if I'm like, it'd be nice to have sex with her, but I don't need it, then her judgment can't harm me. So I want you to notice the story is what harms you. The judgment, harmless. You know, I've been judged for dancing every time I've ever danced. It's never harmed me. I must have been judged. Everybody I ever danced must do a little bit of an assessment on me. I know I assess everybody I dance with and everybody I watch, but I don't do anything to them. I don't go up and go, hey, that wasn't very well, and then kick them in the nuts. You know, I don't do anything to them I've been judging people my whole life and most people didn't even know it was happening. So the idea that it's inherently harmful is bullshit The solution obviously is to want something else that you can provide for yourself and then being judged can't hurt you That's what I decided my journey is like To become confident. All I have to do is only want things that I can provide for myself you know to enjoy being single for example enjoy doing whatever I like for a job to say the truth as long as I can want those things then nobody can take those things away from me and then I'm basically unable to be harmed another story we tell ourselves is I'm doing worse than other people I'm behind I get this a lot with my clients you know I've got a client at the moment he's in his 40s like oh my friends are married and having kids and I haven't even got my career sorted yet. This idea that he's somehow behind his friends, that there's a race and he's lagging and that this is somehow bad. Right? So the translation is that life is a competition and I'm losing that competition and there's going to be some sort of suffering because of the loss. There's a lot of biases going on in here, a lot of biases. One is the assumption that the person is actually doing better. Right, Like I could say, um, for example, that in terms of number of women, in terms of money, in terms of business success, in terms of popularity, Dan Bilzerian, the Instagram king, is doing better than me, right? So I can make that assumption. And yet I've seen interviews with him that show clear signs that he's suffering from severe mental health problems, right? He's probably a drug addict, among other things. So, am I really doing worse than him? Notice how I had to choose arbitrary pieces of information about him to decide that I'm doing worse than him, and I have to ignore other pieces of information that actually call that into question. And we all do this. We do the fundamental attribution error as well. We say, not only is this person doing better than us, they're doing better than us because they're a better person. There's an interesting thing I read um If you read the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, he talks about very successful people, extremely successful people. And he studied the Canadian hockey teams. And one of the things that he found was that the most successful hockey players were all born within a certain period of the year. 90% of them are born from like January to March. And then a small other percentage were born at the end of the year and the rest were, you know, nobody else was born in the middle. And he said, well, how can we have such a high correlation of birth dates with successful athletes? And it was because these birth dates in the schooling system made them the biggest kids in the class. So in an age where size and strength is pretty much all that matters for sport, and that's when what happens when you're a child, if you're the biggest, fastest, and strongest, you're going to be the best because it's, you know, there's no skills back at that level then you're going to be the best which means you're going to be selected for the representative teams which means you're going to get the special training and you're going to get more experience so that by the time you're 20 you're trained to be the best and everybody else who was born the rest of the time of the year was just doing mediocre version of the sport and that's why they're more successful they didn't have a choice on when they were born so they have really nothing to be proud of there in that sense so the idea that you're doing worse than others because they're better than you it's more likely that You have different advantages, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you get to complain and that you don't have to do any hard work. It's just the idea that you're ignoring a lot of evidence to tell yourself that you're worse than others. You're really ignoring a lot of evidence. And the evidence you're ignoring most prominently is the number of people who suffer more than you. If you're watching and listening to this webinar, that means you're doing better internet-wise than all the people who don't have internet, okay? And that's a lot of fucking people. We're talking billions, right? Most of Africa. So if you're doing better than billions of people, how are you doing worse than others? There's this very selective bias where you just take these arbitrary measurement points. You say, those are good. And then you say, see, that person's doing better than me. You look at their bank account. You say, they've got more numbers in their bank account than I do. So therefore, I'm doing worse than them. You have no idea what it's like to be them. They could be suffering immensely. They could be having a great time. They could enjoy life more than you. But maybe the reason they enjoy life more than you is not because they have numbers of money in their account, it's because they don't care about the bank account. The only reason you're suffering is because you do care. You don't consider this, you just think that somehow those numbers matter and that you're doing worse. And you gotta ask yourself, if I'm competing, what is the finish line of this competition? Is it who gets to die the richest? Like, where are you going with this? Where, where is this race leading? Why do you have to race? What is the point of competing? What do you miss out on? Now, some people have answers to this question. So, If I'm not rich, I won't get a girlfriend. Well, I'll show you a billion poor people who are in relationships. Tell me again how money matters. You know, there's this constant story that if you're behind other people in these completely bullshit points of measurement, that somehow you're doing worse. And yet some of the happiest people in the world have nothing. By all measures, they're doing worse than you, but they've found a way, a philosophy, a way of living that they enjoy so much that they don't need all those things that you're craving. You know, There's a famous story about Alexander the Great coming across... um, Who was the philosopher? Was it Aristotle? I always get them mixed up. They came across some philosopher and they had an argument. And... um, uh, the guy wouldn't bend the knee. I think the the philosopher wouldn't bow down to the king. And he was like, "Why won't you bow down to me?" He's like, "I don't need to, you know." And he's like, "I'm the greatest person in the world." Alexander the Great says, basically, "I'm, I'm the greatest person in the world." And he's like, "How do you think you're better than me?" And the philosopher says, "Well, I don't care about being the greatest person in the world, so I win." You know, it's this idea that. The only reason you're suffering because you think you're doing worse than people is that you actually care about those comparison points. If you didn't care, you'd be killing it. You'd be doing better than most people um, in terms of psychological wellness. The The key here is your comparison, your belief that it matters, that somebody else's success has something to do with your quality of life. It's a complete illusion. There are people all over the world suffering worse than you and people all over the world suffering less than you and that has no effect on how much you're suffering. It's got nothing to do with you. How others are doing has no effect on how well your life is going. You could be king of the world and still fucking miserable. I mean, look at the narcissistic fucking insecurity coming from Donald Trump. He's got everything most people could ever want. He's got power, fame, success, family, everything. And he's obviously still an insecure little bitch, right? It doesn't matter how you measure yourself against him. He's doing worse than most people in terms of psychological wellness. So the idea that, that other people's success has some relevance to you is a total myth. And it's actually, it serves a purpose. It allows yourself to tell yourself that you have an excuse, that you're off the hook. They're doing better than me because they're younger, so I don't have to try. That person's doing better than me because they're better looking, so I don't have to try. You know, that person's doing better than me because they had a good childhood, so I don't have to try. You're just bullshitting yourself out of having to do stuff. Right? Your well-being and your quality of life has nothing to do with how you compare with others. And how how much advantages they have is not an excuse for you to get off the hook. You're just gonna have to take care of your own shit, no matter how well they're doing. Number nine, I had a bad past, and I am X because Y happened to me, right? God, that's a horrible picture. Um, the translation here is that the story tells yourself: well, memories of my past are painful, and therefore they justify behavior that I do right now that is less than exemplary. This idea that because you had something bad happen to you in the past, you're now excused for poor behavior. I used to see this a lot with criminal offenders that I worked with, and I see it a lot with my coaching clients and uh, people within the Brojo community now, this kind of idea like I was bullied, my parents were shit, um, my my ex was a nightmare, and therefore I can do this awful piece of behavior. You know, I can bitch and complain, I can be a victim, I can treat other people badly. I saw this so much when I was doing my review of the red pill movement. I was looking at MGTOW and incels and all these guys and what i saw is basically i can treat women like shit because women treated me like shit in the past this justification i can be an awful asshole now because someone was bad to me it's 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 such a horrific story because the ultimate truth is we've all had a bad past there are very few people who say you know i can't think of anything bad that ever happened to me We've all got something and definitely there are scales. There are people who are horrifically traumatized by events in their past and there are people who are resilient to them. But the idea that certain events are guaranteed to be more traumatic is illusionary. You know, I know people who have been raped who are more psychologically well functioning now than somebody who was just bullied once a little bit. You know, it's all subjective. Like how much something traumatizes you depends on who you are. It doesn't mean that you're weaker or stronger. It's just about your genetics and your psychological reaction, your understanding and your storytelling at the time of the event. But the idea that something in your past justifies poor behavior now is just a story, a causal attribution bias. You've chosen an arbitrary point in your past to justify who you are now, and yet everything that's ever happened to you makes you who you are now. Okay? So the idea that like, something bad happened to you and now you're fundamentally flawed is really selective bias. Truth is, everything that's ever happened to you has made you who you are now, and it's all equally relevant. Everything had the effect. Every variable played a part in sequence. Um, and you also, again, that heuristic availability bias comes in. I remember it well, so it must be important. You know, I remember my mum being really bad So it must be important to who I am now. And really, it was just another event. It's the story you tell yourself about it that makes it a big deal. You know, studies show that eyewitness testimony is the least reliable form of evidence. The idea that you can trust your brain to remember what happened accurately during an emotional event is crazy, right? It is one of the most unreliable pieces of evidence. So when you look back in your past, you go, this thing happened to me. You're actually making up what happened to you. It didn't happen like that. It will seem like it did. It looks like a movie in your head. It's crystal clear. And yet you'll be getting people's clothes wrong, their hairstyle wrong. Evidence is clearly shown us in studies. Everything you remember about the event is remembered wrong. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but it didn't happen the way you think it did. So the idea that you can base decision-making on that memory is very faulty. You know, you say, I remember this girl in school was really mean to me. Well, actually, that's not how it happened. That's how you think it happened. But we'll never know how it happened. So the idea that you can now use that to justify a piece of behavior is to say, I'm going to use this story I made up about the past to justify a piece of behavior. You may as well justify your behavior on Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. It's equally fictional. Memories are already narratives. That's an important thing to understand. Like the things that happened to you in the past already have stories attached to them. There were stories attached during the event, and then there's stories attached each time you recall it. By the time you were remembering something for the thousandth time, it's had like a thousand stories added to it. What really happened is lost in the noise now. The raw evidence, the truth about what happened, is minor. One way I look at it is everything that ever happened to me was neutral. It had no good or bad attached to it. And then it has a story that makes it good or bad, right? So I look back on a sunshiny day and I say, that was a good day, but actually it was just a sunshiny day. It could have been dangerous to my health because I'm easily sunburnt. There's any story I can give to that sunshiny day, but it was just a day where there were not clouds. That's all that was true about that day but all the feelings oh, are such a great day. I mean, my family had this awesome time, blah, blah, blah. It's just a story. I'm not, I can't even trust that it really was sunny that day. I don't remember. I, I remember something, but I can't trust my memory. So the idea that your past has some sort of significance to now, that your past is somehow a story that you can use to determine your behavior uh, is really fallacial. You know, so what to do about it. Let's wrap this thing up. It's just a process, a daily process really, of separating raw data from fictional story. I really think the most helpful thing any of you can walk away from this with is just a challenge to yourself to know the difference between raw information like reality, and the story you tell yourself about it, the extra coating of icing that you pour over it, and it's it's really it's a long uh, process of learning to see the difference. You will be they will be so enmeshed that you won't be able to see the difference at first. You'll be talking to someone, and every word that comes out of their mouth gets an extra bit added to it by you, and it'll be really hard for you to see this. Like somebody will say something like. Oh, God, I had such a hard day. And you think, man, they're really suffering. No, no, no. They just said the words, I'm having a hard day. They might not have even had a hard day. They might be lying. It's you that said they're suffering. You don't know that they're suffering. They might enjoy hard days. So just notice, like, you add stuff to everything. You're adding you and your stories to everything. And most of it doesn't actually have any evidence to support it. It just looks like it does. It really looks like it does but it doesn't, you know, there's, I've had this tested so many times with dancing. I'll be dancing with a girl and I make a couple of mistakes and I just think, oh God, that was, she must've not enjoyed that. And then at the end of it, she'll be like, thank you so much. Oh God, that was such a good dance. And then I'm like, oh man, she really did enjoy it. But actually the story about her not enjoying it and the story about her enjoying it are both just stories. I don't know how she felt about it. I know that there was a couple of times that I did some dance moves that didn't go exactly as I expected. And then I made up a story about how those were mistakes. And I know that I suspected that she wasn't enjoying herself because of her facial expression. But all she did was have a facial expression. And at the end, when she said, I enjoyed that, all I know is she said the words, I enjoyed that. I don't know what those words mean to her. I don't know if they're real or not. So anything else on top of that raw information is just bullshit that I've made up. That doesn't mean that you can stop yourself doing this. And, and You don't even need to. You just need to know the difference. When someone says to you, I enjoyed that dance, know that all that really happened is that noise came out of their mouth, went into your air canal, set off an electrical signal, and told you that the words were, I enjoyed that dance. That's all you know for sure. Okay, Everything else about them actually enjoying themselves, how well they feel, what their facial expressions mean, how good you are as a dancer. All of that is fictional extras. You've added that. You know, never fucking trust your brain to be truthful. Challenge, 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 challenge. Where's my proof? Where's my proof? You know, if it's something that's real, then you can show it to somebody else. You can show it to me on a plate. Feel like that person's judging me. Okay, show me the judgment. Where is it? Have you got it written down? Can you show it to me on a plate? You know, if the answer is no, I can't show it to you. It's just in my head then it's not fucking real. And it's important that you know the difference. So you're just constantly asking, is it true? If you have a narrative, ask it to prove itself. Oh my God, everyone here hates me. Okay, prove it. Where's the proof? Well, because they're looking at you? That's not proof of anything. That's just proof that they're looking at you. Where's the proof that they hate you? Go and ask each and every one of them. Do you hate me? Put them up to a fucking polygraph test. See if they're lying or not. Then you can say, yes, they will hate me. Until then, it's just a story. You don't have to fight against the story. You're just challenging it. You're just asking, you just made a claim about facts. Prove your claim. And you're doing it to yourself. The stories will come up for the rest of your life. What you're trying to do is you're just trying to prevent yourself from wasting energy on solving imagined problems. Right? The imagined problem that you're not good enough. The imagined problem that people judging you is going to hurt you. You know, the imagined problem that you're behind everybody else. You'll spend so much time trying to solve these problems and they're not real problems. You don't need to be good enough. It's not even a thing. You don't need to catch up to anybody else. That's not required. That doesn't require any effort from, you You know, your, your narratives give you this, this like task to do and you don't need to do that fucking task. You need to deal with the real issue. Right. Like you're driving along in your car and you're thinking, God, what am I going to do about my... I'm pretty sure my girlfriend's going to break up with me. How do I deal with... Rather than going, hey, you should be driving your fucking car. Concentrate on the road. That's the real problem in front of you. Fucking... How many people crash because they're distracted by texting and stuff? Focus on the real problem. Bring it back. Let that noise talk in the background. Remember, your thoughts are not evidence. You can have really crystal clear certain thoughts and they're still bullshit. Ask yourself, can I hold it in my hand? And If the answer is no, it does not exist. Okay? If it doesn't have physical form, it does not exist. If you go, oh my God, that girl said no to me because I'm too fat. Okay, can you hold the fact that you're too fat in your hands? Can you can you show me her dislike of your weight in, in front of me? Did she at least take a survey or something and says, the reason I... I uh, didn't uh, go out with him is because he's too fat and, and you know a scientist had her brain hooked up to probes and said yeah we can confirm that this region of the neural pathways uh, her preference is for skinny guys unless you can do that you don't have evidence it's not a real um, piece of truth it's just a thought no more true than a thought that says uh, the sun exists inside my asshole you can have that thought doesn't make it true thoughts are just noise they have no truth to them so, <clears> that's <throat> uh, no, computer frozen. What's going on here? Let's stop this here. All right. Uh, Dominic, it's just you and I, is it? Uh, excellent. Um, well, let me just bring you on the line, man. It's been a while since I've seen you. See if that unmutes you here. My computer's having all sorts of issues at the moment. you able to unmute yourself? Oh, there yeah. you go. Hey.
1: Yeah. So. How are you?
0: Good. I'm well, good. good. Yep, in a way. I like to talk a lot. You know, it's like an ego thing. Um. <laughs> any thoughts or questions based on we about today?
1: Yeah, I had like some thoughts on the. They talked about the. You can't change your thoughts. like. I don't agree completely. Like, oh, They have been through the past. Like, I was in a inner child healing work for myself, and I know that my subconscious was driving me all the time. So my whole life story was kind of driven by my subconscious. And now I have the free choice. Since I went into my subconscious mind and rewired some connections there, I got actually the chance to decide not to believe myself anymore. But at some point in life, you don't have a choice. If you're, like, driven by a trauma, um, you have to come to, awareness, to the awareness first that you're actually driven by it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I'm actually in agreement with you there. The choice isn't so much about having the thought, it's about believing it. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's where I think the choice happens, and that's what I'm really saying about these stories, is instead of trying to control your thoughts, just notice that bit where you start believing them. He starts saying, This is real, this is true, this is a truthful account of who I am and what's happening to me and what has happened to me and what will happen to me.
1: It's like, uh, For me, just, I think you. for me, this attachment happened already like a two year old. Like, so, like, this belief formed already so, so early. So, I had actually no chance later on until the event where I really, like, I had my great proof when I went to this inner child healing workshop and I mm-hmm. came into self awareness. Excellent.
0: That's so good, man. I'm so happy for you. And, yeah, for me, it was was similar. It was just once once I was free from the noise in my head. I realized that noise in my head was like, uh, the, the best analogy I ever heard was the radio station. You know, it's just like, it's just a radio that you can't turn off, but you don't actually have to do anything about it. You know, you don't have to obey it. You
1: don't have to follow its instructions. You know, can yell at
0: you all day long. You have no influence on in your behavior, mm-hmm. and um, I found that incredibly
1: helpful. Yeah. Awesome stuff, man! I, I really like enjoyed. It. I, I missed like the first part, but like the last part of the was here. Like I really enjoyed what you were talking about of the happiness stuff. And, like I'm living right now with uh, philosophy of the roller coaster, and just knowing that after each hill, there's like a Fall again in a way, and in the past, I was kind of clinging on the top of the hill and like was really anxious about falling down. And now I'm way more enjoying the ride, and mm-hmm. because I know it's it's kind of wet. Yeah, so that my picture I use currently for all the up and down for life, and it's pretty amazing just you know, to ride it and enjoy the ride actually, instead of being clingy and holding on. Mm.
0: I like that. That's a great analogy. Just kind of just put your hands up, like, woo, like oh no, anxiety, woo,
1: like, happiness. Woo.
0: So I love that. I love yeah. that analogy. Yeah, and that was yeah. That was yeah. For me, I spent so much time trying to like control where the fucking things go and clinging. I like that idea. Um, yeah, you just take your hands off and just go. All right, let's see where it goes. You know, let's try and enjoy yeah. this before I die. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I've always used the analogy of surfing the waves Like if I go out on the waves I can get crushed by them Or I can stay up on the beach and avoid them Or I can go surf surfing you know? And sometimes I'll fall off yeah. I'll tumble but I can just yeah. Like break myself again And Yeah, I think the emotional exactly. is like that. Absolutely Absolutely yeah. Alrighty, man Well, we'll wrap yeah. it up there for today yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us on the yeah. course That's yeah. I think for most of it <laughs> <laughs> um and uh you'll catch up again soon, eh?